How many of you like new stuff? Anybody? See a few faces lighting up, a few hands going up. New clothes, a new car, new hairdo. I've been rocking this one for like 25 years. I don't think it's going to change. Uh, actually, it is changing. I'm noticing I'll be rocking a new one whether I like it or not one of these days. Uh, maybe you like new restaurant and going and trying something new or a new dish at your favorite restaurant. Maybe the perfect vacation for you is an adventure, going someplace you've never seen before, or you really like to make a new friend, meet somebody new, or maybe you're really creative and you like to create something new, try making something new and get good at that. Now, personally, I find a tension between going after that new thing that might be better or might be improved and sticking with what's familiar and just cultivating contentment with that. I, I wrestle between these two. Maybe a, a humorous example of this is when I discovered this wonderful little place called Cheddar's. It's a restaurant. Thank God we don't have one in Sioux Falls because, man, it would not be good for the Sunstrom Six to have one of those in our backyard. Uh, but when I went to Cheddar's, I had the cornmeal catfish. And it was not just the best fish I'd ever had at that point. It was easily one of the best meals I'd ever had. It was just like perfect. Everything about it was amazing, so much so that the next eight or nine or ten or more times that we went to Cheddar's, I only got the catfish because I was just like, man, it's so good. And then finally at, at my family's prodding, I tried something different. I think it was the cedar plank salmon. Most of you would say salmon is better than catfish. It was not better than the cornmeal catfish. And I lamented the fact that I hadn't just gotten the catfish again, right? Uh, sometimes, you know, we do that and we like something so much that we struggle to try something new. Uh, or sometimes we're just so familiar with one way of doing things that we won't try a new way of doing things. In fact, I do all my own sermon slides, um, mostly because I'm OCD and nobody will do it exactly like me, and so I just do it myself. Uh, and maybe there's a better way, and maybe I should uh, <laughs> engage that. But uh, I used to do them in PowerPoint. And uh, PowerPoint isn't really designed for making sermon slides. Like, it's presentation, so yeah, kind of. But Pastor Zach came across this wonderful tool called Canva. We've been using it for years, and he kept saying, you know, Mark, you really should try Canva. It's so much better than PowerPoint. It's so much easier. You'll spend 10 minutes figuring out how things work, and then you'll make better sermon slides quicker and more efficiently. And I put it off for almost a year. And then I finally just tried Canva. And I, I, like, next time I saw him, I'm like, you're not going to believe this. Canva is so much better than PowerPoint. He's like, well, yeah, I've been saying that for a year. So sometimes we do this with things that really matter, and sometimes, you know, we do this with things that don't. But sometimes I'll hold on for way too long, and I won't try something that's clearly better. I did this with my old false self for a very long time. I believed things that weren't true about me, and I kind of latched onto them and built an identity around them even after I had been brought into the truth of the gospel. And even after I had accepted Christ, I allowed other things to define me than what Christ said about me. And I held on to that old false self for a very long time. You see, it was familiar. Even though it didn't really work all that well sometimes, I knew it, and I knew what to expect with it. And I found myself in those ruts. When I finally started to let it go and I started to embrace my identity in Christ and really latch on to that, I found, man, it is so much better. 
It's so much better to be living based on the truth of who I am. And I bring that up, and I'll just kind of mention this sermon series. I've talked about this before. I preached this sermon series back in 2018. Some of you were here then, but a lot of you were not. And uh, a lot of you have forgotten about it since then. Uh, But this is where I really dove deep into that process for me and discovering what is true about you, what Scripture has to say about who you are and whose you are, and what God has to say about you. And there's handouts uh, that are available on the back back tables here in the sanctuary if you want to pick one of those up. There's also a QR code uh, that was on the screen that you could, you could uh, scan that. If you're watching online and you're watching on Facebook, we're dropping a link to that in the, handout, or in the comments if you'd like to print that off for yourself. And it's got some things that are true about you, declarations that God wants you to embrace about yourself from His Word, and then it's got questions for personal reflection or group discussion that you could work through that. And I, I highlight this, one, because it fits really well with our content this morning, but two, because I really am passionate about this. Like, you were, you were created to know God deeply and intimately, and God knows you completely. He knows everything about you, and He deeply desires a relationship with you. He loves you so much. He wants to know you. He wants to be known by you, and He wants you to know the truth about you and the truth about Him. He wants you to know that. He wants you to be able to see as he sees. Because as he sees, that's reality. That's the truth. And I would even go so far as to say that that when you see as God sees, you'll do as he says. Just naturally. Because if you see things the way God sees him, you'll do what he says. And all sin is a failure to see as God sees. Because if we saw things the way that he sees them, we would do things the way that he says to do them. And uh, that's why this matters so much. And and this kind of dovetails real nicely with our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series. We're looking at these things. We're working beneath the surface on who we are. Last week, we talked about the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality, that, that we can bring some things, we can smuggle some things into our relationship with God. We can carry some bad luggage into that trip with God, and it can trip us up and keep us from experiencing all that He wants us to have. He wants us to be deeply changed, to be transformed in our inner selves and in the way that we impact this world, because deeply changed people change the world deeply. That was our bottom line last week, if you weren't here, that deeply changed people, when we undergo deep transformation, we're then able to change the world deeply. And I think we can all agree that the world around us, whether that's the concentric circle of our own families, might be in need of deep change. Our communities, our nation, our world are in need of deep change. And it will come through deeply changed people. The process might be uncomfortable. In fact, I promise you it will be uncomfortable to undergo deep change. But I also promise you it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. And you'll get out of it what you put into it. So real quickly, I want to run through five levels of engagement. We talked a little bit about these last week, and I went into more depth with them. But really, just run through these quickly. Uh, The first level of engagement that you could pick for this sermon series would be to attend or to watch online if you can't attend uh, each of the eight weeks. Make that a habit. Make that a priority. If you have to miss being here in person, watch it online on Sunday or early on Monday. The second would be to also read the book. The Emotionally Healthy Spiritual Book, or Emotionally Healthy Spirituality books are available for you here. Uh, We're just passing our costs on to you. Uh, Obviously, if you're not reading your Bible, start there. I'm never going to put another book above Scripture, so if you're not reading Scripture on a regular basis, do that. 
But if you are and you could add something, uh, this would be a great resource to you, or you can find it on audiobook or something like that. And the next would be to also do a self-study with the workbook and the additional videos and the reflection questions that are available in that and to go really deep and do the exercises and put uh, some of your own skin in the game, so to speak, to really absorb these things. If you do that, you could also participate in a group. That's level four. There's groups that are meeting. There's one meeting right now uh, at 10.30 on Sundays in the youth room. It's not too late. Even You don't have to run out of here this morning, but you could sign up for that and join in next week and watch the one video or two videos that you missed. There's also a group starting this Wednesday uh, that's going to be meeting here. Nate and Sherry Rigg are going to lead that group. Uh, you could start your own group. Um, so that would be an opportunity for you. And then the finally would be to add the day-by-day -day devotional, which is just a wonderful complement to all of this and gives you additional things to think about throughout the day. But today we're going to talk about this idea that you know yourself, know yourself that you may know God. Know yourself that you may know God. You might think, well, isn't that backwards? Shouldn't I know God that I would know myself? Well, yes. But I think that is more the given. And we don't necessarily consider the facts the ways in which knowing ourselves more deeply would help us to know God more deeply. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to focus on a couple of passages from the New Testament. The first one is a teaching from Paul that lays this out for us. And then the second is sort of an example or a case study in how Jesus puts this on display for us and shows us what emotionally healthy spirituality looks like in a really powerful way. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24. If you need a Bible, we have them in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those. Uh, I'll even give you the page number. It's page 1821 if you grab one of our Bibles. If you're following along on your own or you're following along on screen, I just want to give you a couple of insights into the way that Ephesians is structured. Ephesians is an interesting book. It was actually a letter when it was first written from Paul to a church that he had helped plant in a city called Ephesus. And uh, that's why we call it the book of Ephesians, even though it was really a letter. And when Paul wrote it, he didn't separate it out into chapters and verses, uh, but we do that now. And we do know that when Paul wrote this letter, the first half of it, what we call chapters one through three in our Bibles, was predominantly doctrine and theology. And he's explaining really big concepts about God and who God is and who we are in relationship to him. Then he sort of turns a corner in the second half of that book, and what we have is chapters four, five, and six, and he becomes very applicable or very practical in his treatment of the truth that he has just described. So the first three chapters are more doctrinal and theological. The second three chapters, the last three chapters, are more practical and applicable. And so that's the passage that we're going to be looking at today. I want to read this passage to you in three chunks, and so we'll start with verses 17 through 19, where Paul says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles represent the world's way of doing things, people who are far from God, far from a relationship with the one true God. He says, don't live. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And you're like, wow, that actually sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> like, that sounds like the world that we find ourselves in, the culture that we find ourselves in. You see, for, for centuries, for millennia, the world has kind of said, if it feels good, do it. That's sort of the world's way 
of, of being in the world. If it feels good, do it. No objective morality, no consequences. And so Paul is saying, don't live like that. Don't live like the rest of the world. Don't live like the people that are far from God. And if you look at the words that he uses to describe that way of being, it's words like futility, darkened in their understanding, separated from God, ignorance, hardened hearts, lostness, sensuality, indulgence, impurity, and a continual lust for more. And I'm like, man, he wrote that 2,000 years ago. What would he say today? And it reminds me of this quote that I, or this question that I asked last week. And that question was, is your inner and outer life, so what's going on behind the scenes and what's going on front stage for the world, is your inner and outer life overwhelmingly characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Because that is a sharp contrast. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, which was how Paul defined the kingdom of God. Living in the kingdom of God was righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, that is in stark contrast to how the world is living. And that's why he insists that we don't live that way. He's saying, this is not good for you. This is not good for your soul. It's not good for your spirit, and it's not good for the world around you. And so he continues in verse 20 and 21. He says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way, that living the way the world lives and pursuing the things the world tells you to pursue are not how you came to know Christ. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. He says, that's not for you. You know Christ now. And you didn't discover Christ by pursuing all of those things. You heard of him. Faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God, he wrote to the Romans church. He says, that's not for you. You know Christ, and you should live according to the truth that is in Jesus. And I think that truth is twofold. It's the truth about who he is, and it's the truth about who you are. It's seeing God as he really is and seeing ourselves as we really are. That's how we live in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Now, he continues in verses 22 through 24. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, this language here in these three verses echoes with a lot of other writings that Paul has. He's saying you were to take off your old self, to put it off and to Put on the new self. That old self is being corrupted by deceitful desires. It's almost like you think about a change of clothes. When you go out and you're, maybe you're working on a car or you're working in the garden, you get dirty. You take off the dirty clothes and you put on the clean clothes. And he says to be made new. And it reminds me of Romans 12.1 where he says, Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is, what is good, pleasing, and perfect will is. So you can learn to see as God sees, and you'll naturally do as he says, if you see as he sees. And he talks about putting on that new self. We don't just take off the old, we put on the new. In Colossians 3, he says it this way, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves in compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, and put love over all of these things. That clothes are what people see when they look at us first, right? They look at our face and they look at our clothes. And, and these characteristics, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and love, should be immediately recognizable in our lives, just as immediately recognizable as the color of my shirt or the pants that I'm wearing. 
And he summarizes all this in the last phrase there of verse 24, be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That is God's vision for your life, that you would be like him in true righteousness and holiness. And you might say, well, Pastor Mark, that's a really tall order. Like, I'm going to be like God in true righteousness and holiness? Yeah, that's his vision for your life. And the best part is that he'll help you with it. Whole last week was this invitation that Christ gives to us to come to him, to learn from him, to watch how he does it, and to do it the way that he does it, to learn to live your life as Jesus would if he were you. And I've had some interesting conversations with people about that, kind of wrestling with that. What does that look like? And what does it mean that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Because sometimes it doesn't feel that easy and it doesn't feel that light. And so we have to remember, he's not promising a world free or a life free of trouble. In fact, he promised just the opposite in John. In John 16, he said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so the real question is, do you want to be yoked to the one who overcame the world? Or do you want to be yoked to the world he overcame? That's the contrast that Paul is making here. That's the contrast that Jesus is making when he invites us to come to him and learn from him. And so we need to put off the old. We need to be made new. We need to know God as he truly is so that we can be like him in true righteousness and holiness. And we need to know ourselves as we truly are, to learn to see ourselves through God's eyes. That's what's really at play here. When we talk about this sermon title of know yourself that you may know God, know yourself as you really are, deeply and truly. See yourself as God sees you so that you can see God as he truly is. And one of the reasons this is so important, and this is a quote that I've shared, but it's been a while, and it's just so true. It's a quote from a theologian named Craig Barnes that you can only surrender what you know of yourself to what you know of God. You can only surrender what you know of yourself to what you know of God. When I first surrendered my life to Christ, I knew about this much of myself, of the real inner workings of my heart. I didn't really have a true identity, but I surrendered what I knew of myself to what I knew of God. And since then, what I've known of myself has grown and expanded, and I've been able to surrender that to God as well. And I think that's the process of discipleship is knowing and understanding ourselves better, knowing and understanding God better, and then surrendering systematically those things that we discover about ourselves to who God is and how we understand him. That's why we need to be yoked to Jesus. That's why we need to go through life at his pace, yoked to him, learning from him, watching him and how he does it. But it also creates this, this uh, relationship or this interrelatedness between God awareness and self-awareness. Our awareness of God and, and our value for God's place in this world as well as our awareness for ourselves and our value for our place in the world. I remember when I saw a pastor sketch this out on a little two-by-two. Two. Now, I love a good two-by-two, two, right? You know, you draw a vertical line and you draw a horizontal line, and it creates relationships between two things. And so, on the screen, you see this diagram. It's a two-by-two. Two. It creates two-by-two. Two. That's why we call it a two-by-two. Two. And uh, the, the horizontal line there represents our self-awareness. 
And anything on the right side of the line would be a, a growing awareness of ourselves. Anything on the left side of the line would be a lower awareness of ourselves. And the vertical line represents our God awareness. Anything above the midpoint would be a growing awareness of God. Anything below the midpoint would be a low awareness of God. And it creates these relationships. I want to start in the top left and kind of walk you around some of the world's philosophies as it relates to this God awareness and self-awareness. In the top left, you have a high God awareness, but a very low self-awareness. Maybe you or someone you knew grew up in a, a religious system or in a family system where it was all about God and, and personal responsibility or personal accountability was very low. This idea that, that God is the puppeteer pulling all the strings. He's in total control. Our decisions do not impact our lives or the world around us. We're just playing out a script. That's a very, very high God awareness and a very low self-awareness. We would call this fatalism. This idea that I don't matter. My decisions don't matter. I'm not going to impact the world. It's all been scripted. And if you take a, a view of God's sovereignty to a far extreme, to the point that our decisions don't matter, you end up in fatalism. So people say, it's all just fate. What I do doesn't matter. My life's going to end the same way at the same point in time. This is false. This is not true, and this is not what Scripture reveals to us. And the next one would be in the bottom left corner, if we look at that. This would be a very low view of God, a very low view of ourselves. This is characterized by the philosophy of nihilism. Nihilism is where we get our word annihilation. Nothingness. Nothing matters. God's not in control. I'm not in control. It's just evolution playing itself out, and we get to march through it. Again, very false, this idea that nothing matters. Scripture doesn't teach us this at all. The next one would be a low view of God, but a very high view of self. This might be the one that is the flavor of the day in our culture outside of the walls of a church. The very high view of the individual, a high view of the self, create your own truth. You do you, do it your way. You live your truth. And no uh, consciousness of an objective moral standard, no consciousness of a God that loves us so much that he would die for us. This is called narcissism. It gets its name from a Greek story of a person named Narcissus who fell in love with his own reflection. And I think in the story, he actually starves to death because he can't tear himself away from his own reflection. He just stares over a pool of water until he wastes away. That's narcissism, the idea that only I matter. God doesn't matter. You don't matter. Only I matter. This, again, is a false world view. That final one in the top right, and typically on a two-by-two, two, the top right is where all the good stuff happens. This is where we have a high view of God, a high value for God. We hold him in very, very high regard, but we also hold ourselves in high regard because God does. And we see the world as it is. We see ourselves as we truly are, that we see ourselves through God's eyes. And this might be called co-creation, at least that's how it was described when it was explained to me, this idea that we move through life growing in our awareness of God and growing in our awareness of ourselves, seeing ourselves as he sees and it opens up more and more and more. And we move into the abundant life that Jesus desperately desires for us to have, that we would step into the life that is truly life, the abundant life, the rich and satisfying life that he came for us to have. And so if we put all this together, we would say that a growing awareness of ourselves and God, a growing understanding, a growing acceptance, uh, and being able to see ourselves as we truly are and see God as he truly is, now we can surrender more and more of ourselves to God. And we can live in this fullness 
of life, to be like God, as Paul just said in Ephesians 4.24, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, seeing everything as it truly is, seeing ourselves as we truly are, seeing God as he truly is, seeing the people around us as they truly are, and that will lead us to true righteousness and holiness. Sounds like Jesus. Sounds like living the Jesus way. And we'll find if we do this that there will be decreased self-centeredness, decreased self-righteousness, decreased self-sufficiency, and increased Christ-centeredness. Instead of being self-centered, we can be Christ-centered. Instead of being self-dependent or self-reliant or self-sufficient, we can be dependent upon Christ. Instead of being led around by our desires, as Paul says, we can experience righteousness and holiness and experience the truth, living in true righteousness and holiness, seeing God as he is, seeing ourselves as we are. Now, when I began to really engage this, I was surprised, maybe even shocked, at how big a deal my feelings were <laughs> in all of this. You might say, well, this is all philosophical, right? No, like our, our emotions really matter in this. And for some of you, feelings is the dreaded F word. Like, don't make me talk about my feelings. I don't want to talk about my feelings. I like to keep my feelings in a box and put it on the shelf. And every now and then when I was having a bad day, I might get it out, look inside the box. Yeah, okay, got some feelings. Tape it shut, put it back on the shelf. Now, others maybe are big-time feelers. You feel things all the time. You love to talk about your feelings. But for some of us, we've kind of relegated the role that our feelings play, especially in spiritual growth, uh, to a very small role. And yet, we were created in the image of a God who feels deeply. Read the pages of Scripture. God feels deeply. He has deep, deep love for you and for every person you will ever meet. He has a deep, deep wrath against injustice. He feels deeply, and He expresses those feelings. And you were created in the image of a God who feels deeply. And so our emotions really matter. Our feelings really matter. And in the book, uh, Scazzaro quotes Dan Allender. And it's a lengthy quote, but I want to read it to you because it makes a really good point and it fleshes it out for us. Dan Allender says, Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We're frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. So that's the lesson. <laughs> That's Ephesians 4 and the point that Paul is making in verses 17 through 20, that we, we have to take off the old self, not live that way any longer, but put on the new self and learn to see things as they truly are, to be created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, the last thing that I want to do in the remaining three minutes and 51 seconds, ha, <laughs> That's not going to happen, but buckle in. This will be good because we're going to look at an example in Jesus' life and how he shows us how to overcome three temptations towards that false self, towards the world's way. And he takes them head on, one by one, and he disarms them and defeats them, and he shows us how we can do the same. 
And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, but uh, as you're turning there, page 1450 or 1499 in those blue Bibles, uh, I want to look at the two verses right at the end of Matthew chapter 3, because this is really a pivotal moment, I think, in this whole thing that we're talking about, because it deals with identity in a really powerful way. And so it's Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We read these words that as soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice came from heaven and said, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. You see, Jesus knew who he was. And he knew whose he was. And there were no doubts whatsoever about what was true about him. And at this pivotal moment, God makes a declaration. And he says, oh, this is my son who I love. With him, I am well pleased. And maybe you heard that or something like that from your parents growing up, but maybe you didn't. And maybe God speaks that over you today if you are in Christ and you have come to Christ and now when God looks at you, he sees Jesus standing behind you and he says, this is my son, this is my daughter whom I love with them. I am well pleased. And it sounds too good to be true. I just want you to sit in that truth for a moment. Because it was really timely for Jesus. Not only was he able to fully surrender all of himself to all of God, but he was able to step into the next thing that was coming into this temptation. Now, you would think after a moment like that, that chapter 4, verse 1 would say, then Jesus started crushing it. He healed everybody, did everything that needed to be done, ushered in the kingdom of God, and it was all great. But that's not what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. It says that he was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. That there was a testing. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, you hear that question? If you are the Son of God, if what God says about you is true, if you're really his Son, then tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so this first temptation away from our true selves, a first temptation to our false self, is the temptation of performance. Satan tempts him to do this little trick, which Jesus had the power and capacity to do. He fed 5,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. You think he can't turn a stone into bread? He absolutely can. But Satan is tempting him with performance in this belief that I am what I do. And this is at the heart of religion, too, the religion that says, do more, try harder, and maybe God will like you. It's up to you. You've got to do more. You've got to try harder. And this was the first temptation that Satan brought. And I find it interesting that when we're in social settings, what's the first or second question you usually ask somebody when you meet them? Oh, what do you do? Or if they're retired, what did you do? And we, we really focus on performance in our world. The world focuses on performance. And behind that question, which is fairly innocent, is a deeper one that might be asking this question, what have you achieved? How have you demonstrated your usefulness to the world? It's all about performance. It's all about religion. And Scazzaro makes the point 
that earthly success tempts us to find our worth and value outside of God's inexhaustible free love for us in Christ. That when we're successful, when we are special among our peers, when we stand out, there's nothing wrong with that, but it tempts us to find our worth and our value in that instead of in God's inexhaustible free love for us in Christ. One of the things that tripped me up the most was being a successful pastor of a growing church. When that was my identity for a couple of years and I was leading a church that was growing and we were baptizing people and everything was up and to the right in that church, I started to think, you know what? I'm a successful pastor of a growing church. That's what I always wanted to be. And man, the crash from that was pretty severe. And I talk about that in this sermon series, The What's True About You, and I've talked about that other times, so I'm not going to go too long on that right now, but that's what happens. We're tempted to find our worth and value outside of God's inexhaustible free love for us in Christ. The second temptation we find in verses 5 through 7, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot on a stone and everyone will see it and it'll be awesome. And Jesus answered, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I think the second temptation is that Temptation towards popularity, towards the spectacle, towards being known for something, that I am what others think of me. Now, most of us care more about this than we want to admit or than we realize. We care more about what others think than we realize much of the time. And Scazzaro makes the point that true freedom comes when we no longer need to be somebody special in other people's eyes because we know we're lovable and good enough, and I would add, in God's eyes. We know those things that are true about us. We see ourselves through God's eyes, and we don't need to be special in other people's eyes because we know we're lovable and good enough in God's eyes. Now, on the flip side of this, sometimes maybe you've met somebody that, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Well, I think that's a dangerous overcorrection, that we get out of balance on that side too, and we devalue the opinions of others so much that we're not free there either. That's its own little box to live in. And that there's a balance between these two when we see ourselves as we really are and we see God as he truly is and we recognize that he might put people around us and they might tell us something and if those things start to line up, we should pay attention to that. But we're not manipulated by what people think. We've experienced that freedom because we know who we are in Christ. Now, the third temptation comes in verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Now this temptation would be the temptation of possessions. I am what I have. If I'll just worship you, Satan, I can have all of this. Now it's kind of ironic because first Corinthians or I'm sorry Colossians 1 tells us Jesus created all that <laughs> like how's Satan going to give it to him Psalm 24 tells us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and yet we can be tempted to identify ourselves by what we have by our possessions and the toxin of comparison makes its way into our lives who has the most who has the best who has the brightest who has the newest who has the fanciest etc., etc. But we were not designed by God to be defined by our possessions or our popularity or our performance. 
We're designed to be defined by him. And what he says is true about us. And you might say, well, that's really great, Pastor Mark, but how do I discover that? How do I develop a deeper understanding of who I am and deeper understanding of my true self? On pages 61 through 68 of the book, it goes deep into this. I'm going to move through them very, very quickly. But the first is silence and solitude, that when we get alone and we withdraw from the world and we spend time in silence, nothing in our ears, and solitude alone with God, where we can listen, where we can think, where we can reflect, where we can spend unhurried time with God through His Word, through prayer, learning what He says about us and sitting in that and resting in that. I would encourage you to also bring a journal and journal some of your thoughts. Write down the things that God shows you from His Word and from prayer that are true according to His Word, the things that He says are true about you. Journal those, and then I would really highly recommend you, you prayerfully review that journal on a regular basis. This was when journaling went from something I kind of did every now and then to something that I did on a regular basis. It was when I began to prayerfully review that journal. Every 10 or so days, I would read back over the last 10 days and relearn those insights and be reminded because sometimes we don't need new information. We just need to remember what God has shown us. And once a month, I would do that. Go back through and remind myself and jot down those really significant lessons from God. And then once a year, I review the monthly reviews, and it helps me to remember what God is teaching me and to reinforce that and to reinforce the identity and what's true about me. So you can spend time in silence and solitude. Second would be to spend time uh, and develop fellowship with others and have trusted companions, safe places to share things, to download your junk, so to speak, lightning rods, people that you can share things with and it doesn't go beyond them and they don't think any less of you because of whatever it is you're struggling with. A safe place to process, to engage with or wrestle with things. Somebody that might ask you a really good question or two every now and then. And you might need to hire one of these people if you don't have one in your life, but it's that important that I would encourage you to cut the cable and sign up for Christian counseling once a month if you need to in order to to afford that. If you have to make a sacrifice, I think it's that important. I think it's that valuable. The third one would be to leave your comfort zone. And you might say, well, geez, you've already nailed that one with the first two. I don't want to be alone and I don't want to talk about my stuff. And now you're telling me to leave. I've got to leave my comfort zone to do the first two. And yet this is true because growth is uncomfortable by nature. If you had little kids, you know that every now and then they'll say, my my leg hurts. And there's no earthly reason that their legs should hurt. It's what we call what? Growing pains. That growth can be very uncomfortable. Getting stronger and getting healthier is often difficult, whether you're doing it physically by lifting weights or running or doing some other kind of aerobic exercise. If if you're trying to grow healthier and stronger emotionally or spiritually or relationally or even financially, it's often difficult. You have to make changes, and that feels uncomfortable. But there's a really cool diagram that I came across recently, and it illustrates the relationship between our comfort zone and our growth zone. And you can see on there that the comfort zone is inside the fear zone. And that's why we call it the comfort zone, because it's comfortable in there, but it's scary to get out of it. There's unanswered questions. There's uncertainty. What are people going to say? What are people going to think? How's it going to feel? And so we stay in the comfort zone, and we don't step out into the unknown. But if we will, if we'll move through that fear zone, that's when we find the learning zone. That's where we attain new insight, new understanding, new discernment. 
And on the other side of that is where we grow, that if we'll step out of our comfort zone, move through the fear, and start to learn some things and start to grow, then we will be different. We will be changed. And that's where this fourth one comes in. You need this for all three, but particularly if you move through those three and you start to really change, pray for courage. Pray for courage initially to face the fear and to embrace the process, but also pray for courage to sustain the change because your growth and your changing might be uncomfortable for some of the people around you. It might highlight ways in which they're not growing and changing. It might make you harder to manipulate. And uh, one thing that, uh, that one of my counselors explained to me was the idea that family systems are like a mobile. You know, the mobile that you put over the crib for the kid to watch and you just give it a little spin and everything moves around. Sometimes they have motorized ones and the baby falls asleep because there's a little more than they can take in there. Well, family systems and even close relational systems like you might have at work or even in a church are like a mobile. When you move one thing, everything else has to move too. One piece of the mobile doesn't move on its own. The other pieces move as well. And so when you change and when you grow and you become different, it's going to force some people around you to move and change as well, and they may not want to. And they may not know how to handle the changes in your life. And so you might need to pray for courage to sustain that, both to initiate the process but also to embrace and to sustain the process. Because when our understanding of ourself changes and deepens and our understanding of God changes and deepens, then we get to rediscover him continually and we get to surrender more and more of ourselves to more and more of him. And so that is why we're talking about this today. And so our bottom line today brings us back to that quote. I really couldn't say it any better. I wrestled with it for a while. And then I just said, you know what? I think I'm going to remind him of the quote. You can only surrender what you know of yourself to what you know of God. And so you have to know more of yourself so that you can know more of God and so you can surrender more of yourself to God. And so my question to you is, are you willing to dig a little deeper into the truth of who you are? Which of those temptations that Christ faced and and showed us the way through is the hardest for you? Is it the temptation towards performance, achievement, maybe religion? Is it the temptation towards possessions that I am what I have, so I have to get more? It's a temptation towards popularity. I am what others think, so I've got to put on a good show. I've got to put out a highlight reel every single day so that people will think that I'm really something. Where do you need to spend a little more time developing your true self? Where do you need to engage? Is it the silence and solitude? Could you reorder your schedule to create more space for silence and solitude in your life? Is it fellowship and trusted friends? Is that an area where you could use some growth, maybe even need to seek out some counseling? Is there a comfort zone that you need to leave, an area where it's gotten comfortable and you're kind of afraid or apprehensive to move outside of that, but you know if you did that you would learn new things and that you would change and grow? Or do you need to pray for courage today? Whatever God's saying to you, I hope and pray that you'll lean into it, that you'll respond in faith to it, and that you'll take the step with him. Take the invitation that he's offering. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for today and for the time that we've had to be together with you and with each other. Time to worship, time to hear from your word. We ask you to show us in these moments as we respond what a faithful response looks like, what a faith-filled response looks like, and help us to take it. We love you and we know that you love us. Help us to see the world through your eyes. 
and to be transformed into the image of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.